So I want to start the class by just sort of asking the question, um, why study a catechism? So we're coming off of uh, Deity and Decree with uh, Samuel Renahan as we thought through the perfections of God, um, the, the, the deity of, of God. Um, we talked about God's uh, holiness, uh, God's uh, infinite wisdom, that God is long-suffering, he's patient. So again, we went deep and wide. And so we wanna sort of, with that background, move into uh, a more condensed, sort of pithy little booklet, a catechism. Now it has a hun- around 148 questions, but it's in catechism format. So can, does anybody know what catechism is? What, 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 is, what, what does that word come from? What does it mean? Kyle? Yeah, yeah, yep, to, to repeat back in basically Q and A format. Uh, catechism comes from the Greek word katecheo, which simply means to teach. And we've seen that in that form of repeating back through question and answer. Uh, the purpose of the catechism is to provide a foundation for our faith based on scripture. Now, when you think about the catechism or even the confession, you'll see at the beginning of the confession, this sort of argument, really in paragraph one of chapter one, that the scriptures are the final authority in faith and life and godliness. Yet, we recognize that we're reading that inside of a confession, which is uh, uh, something outside of scripture itself, which points to it. But even the confession itself shows us that God, we see the wisdom of Christ, and the church um, and ages before us as books, uh, confessions, catechisms were put together with the churches, which, is, which the, church, the church has always used, even from the third century, to teach the things of scripture, not on par with scripture, but to point to scripture. And so we see that again in an orthodox catechism. Now, when we think about catechism, we might think that it's out of place for a 20th century church we might think, why are we studying a catechism? Uh, something that we can probably associate with the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. Why is a Baptist church studying the catechism? Why would a Reformed Baptist church use its Sunday school hour to study a 17th century document? Well, believe it or not, catechisms are not just Roman Catholic. Ryan Reeves says, Depending on how wide a net we cast, there are roughly 40 or 50 reformed or reformed influence confessions written between 1520 and 1650, uh, by far uh, the most of any Protestant tradition. So almost every denomination and tradition in church history has used some form of catechesis for the religious education of Christian children, and adults from Lutherans to Presbyterians to Baptists to Catholics to Anglicans all have used some form of catechesis. Now, if if I'm not mistaken, I was trying to remember what the number was, but if I'm not mistaken, there were uh, almost 200 different confessions or formal documents produced in the first 500 years of the New Testament church as they were hashing out 
um, theology and doctrine and the hypostatic union, how Christ is truly God and truly man, and what does it mean that God is a trinity? And so again, we see catechisms in the life of the church. Ryan Reeves also said, during the Reformation era, the printing press not only allowed people to have uh, Bibles printed in their own language, but it also helped to spread Protestant catechizing materials. And the reformers, you know, when we think about the Reformation, we think about maybe, you know, Luther and, you know, him nailing these 95 theses to this door of this church. And, you know, he has this huge hammer like Thor and he's nailing it. And it's like this very dramatic thing, um, which it wasn't, it was normal <laughs> to do that. But one of the things that we see come out of the Reformation, um, I think one thing that's not normally thought about or maybe talked about is this idea that um, every Christian is given to do work and to do honest work, which is glorifying to God. Um, there was a, a restoration of marriage and the family, um, which was either lost or just sort of put to the back burner. That came out of the Reformation, was renewed in the, in the Reformation, and also catechisms. So the reformers, they saw themselves as retrieving what the early church had practiced and put into place that had been lost during the medieval age within the church. And so they were bringing these catechisms back to the surface and saying, no, the church needs this. The families, the men, the women and children, they need to understand big doctrine in a very simple way. And so they would write and formulate catechisms. <clears throat> they saw themselves picking up and dusting off the normative use of tools like catechisms, which had been corrupted um, during the medieval age. Martin Luther himself said, by the grace of God, I have brought about such a change that nowadays a girl or boy of 15 knows more about the church doctrine than all the theologians of the great universities used to know in the old days. For among us, the catechism has come back into use. I mean, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments. And we see language of each of those found in various catechisms. Now, it's interesting that Hercules um, Collins here, his Orthodox catechism is simply a Baptistic version of the Heidelberg Catechism, which was produced about a year earlier. Now, or sorry, uh, about 100 years earlier, yeah. So I wanna talk about Hercules Collins, uh, the man. Not this Hercules, the classic. Not this Hercules, the cartoon. But this Hercules, the preacher. Now, I'm not even sure that's Hercules Collins. It's just the best picture I could find um, of what seems to be a minister leading his people. And this is actually appropriate. Um, and you'll see why for a reason. These people are sort of pilgrims cast out and they're traveling across the land, um, which was a reality in the life of Hercules Collins, which I'll, I'll talk about. Now, not much is known about Hercules Collins' early life. Um, a man named John Piggott preached at Hercules Collins' funeral. And he describes Hercules Collins as interested in Christianity from his early life. Now, I, wa I wanted to go through this introduction before we get into 
the uh, catechism because I think it'll give some context um, as to Hercules Collins' preface in this catechism. He writes this long preface, which we may or may not read next week if, if we get a chance. But he writes this long preface, and I think understanding his life and what he went through and what he suffered gives some context to that. And so I want to spend some time working through this. I know we're tired, and this is historical, but I think it'll, it'll help for future classes. Okay. So he was... Um, understood or it's recorded that he was a man that was interested in Christianity in his early life. Um, now with a name so unusual like Hercules, you wonder, was his, were his parents unbelievers? Were they Christians? That name wasn't extremely common at that time, especially for a Christian. But it seems that his parents were believers. Maybe they were unbelievers when they had him and they named him Hercules and maybe were, were saved. Because if they were Christians, it would have been common for them to name, you know, Puritans to name their children Mary or, or Joseph or Grace or Hope or Faith or something like that. Um, it's recorded that one Puritan, uh, some Puritan family named their son um, Fear God. And then they had another name for their child that was, and I'm trying to re remember the quote, um, if one confesses and believes, he will be saved. That was the name of the child. <laughs> so some Puritans, you know, a common name, faith, hope, love, that was common for the Puritan era, but you had some that were really Puritan. <laughs> and their names, their children's names were literally like verses. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how you do that. <laughs> When you want them to take out, when you want your son to take out the trash and you say, anyone who confesses in the name of the Lord will be saved. Get in here. You know, he's like, okay. <laughs> it can be helpful, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, it was just really interesting. So I, I found that in some of my research on this. Um, but Hercules was born in 1647. And it's recorded that he started to take his commitment to Christ serious in around 1660 which means he would have been 13, around 13 years old. Um, it's likely that he was a member of Petty France Baptist Church in London. Is anybody familiar with Petty France Baptist Church? So it is, a, it is the first recorded that we know of particular Baptist, as we understand, Reformed Baptist Church in London. The uh, first probably in, in the world and so he was a member of that church. Um, later, Hercules Collins would pastor his own church, which was called Particular Baptist Church in Wapping, London. He became a pastor around 20 years old, and the Lord blessed his ministry, and he died uh, preaching to around 700, or 700 were coming to hear him preach, which was pretty, pretty much a mega church at that time. Um, when he became a pastor at this church in, in uh, Wapping, there were around 120 people and the church doubled. And by the time he died, there were about 700 attending or coming to hear him preach. Um, during his time as a pastor, he along with many other dissenting congregations were heavily persecuted. He was put at one point in Newgate Prison, which at that time was renowned as the most notoriously uh, 
not only corrupt, but just the conditions of the prison were, were, were the worst that um, was really in, 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 in England at that time. One 17th century novelist, he said that this Newgate prison in London, or in England where Hercules Collins was held, he called it a prototype of hell. It was, it was that bad. Um, many just because of the conditions and sicknesses and disease would die um, in, in prison. And actually many of Collins, he had three specific uh, brothers who were in prison with him as dissenters, which we'll talk about in a sec. Um, and they actually died in prison because of the, the, the conditions there. Uh, during this time, Charles II was in power. And during this time, around 4,000 London dissenters were arrested and convicted for attending what was called an illegal religious meeting. An illegal religious meeting. Collins and many others did not conform to the state church. <clears throat> now, in the introduction to this book in Orthodox Catechism, um, Stephen Weaver writes, Collins Day was also a time of intense persecution for anyone who sought to worship outside the state church, the Church of England. Nearly, nearly the totality of that body of Christians known as the Puritans who had sought a greater reformation of the state church for a hundred years or so had been forced out of the Church of England 18 years earlier in 1662. Various pieces of legislation collectively known as the Clarendon Code subsequently made all but Anglicans second-class citizens. In fact, between 1660 and 1668, the Puritan cause was a church under the cross. The state actively harassed those outside the established church and imprisoned church leaders. And so Hercules Collins, his church, other churches around him were heavily persecuted. Um, this was a time where in some sense, the sword and the cross were uh, welded together and many Puritans were um, imprisoned and, and died. Now, the reason Collins, this is interesting, ended up in prison at Newgate um, is because he violated something called the Five Mile Act, where he was forbidden to live within five miles of any city or town or borough. So because of this, his church actually had to move. His church was, it was ransacked, it was destroyed. Um, the pews, the, the, um, the pulpit, the windows were smashed. Um, all of this sort of in the name of uh, the, the Holy Church, the church in England, um, the Anglican Church. They smashed this, uh, the church, destroyed it, and so the church had to move. And so this is somewhat accurate in that uh, they really had to move to a place outside or away from any city, town, or borough and worship for much of the time during the persecution in houses. And so it's interesting when we think about the persecuted church um, even in times past, we think about um, the, those martyrs in the, the early church in the third, fourth, and fifth century. We think about the persecuted church now. We think about churches in maybe the, um, you know, the other side of the world in foreign countries where there's persecution. But usually we don't think particular Baptist church persecution. Uh, 
but that was that was the case here for uh, Hercules Collins, <coughs> the particular Baptist church, and many others. Now, this would all change um, in time. In 1688, the Protestant William III was placed on the throne. Less than a year after his taking the throne, the Toleration Act was passed. Now, what does that mean for a dissenter? Um, can you guess what a dissenter is based off of what we've been talking about and the persecution, Anglican Church, Church of England? What, what, what do you think a dissenter is? That's right. Yep. They were going against, they were uh, dissenting, moving away from the uh, established state church, the Anglican church. Um, so when William III took the throne, he was Protestant. And so he developed the, him and others that developed the Toleration Act. It was passed under his legislation, at least. And it ended the overt persecution of Protestant and those who did not conform to the state church. Michael Haken wrote, in this new political reality, Calvinistic Baptists, so Reformed Baptist churches at that time, they didn't have like Reformed uh, Baptists as, as a category. They were Calvinistic Baptists or even Particular Baptists, which even that name came a little later, but mostly Calvinistic Baptists and that they believed in the sovereignty of God over grace, salvation and election, the absolute sovereignty of God. And so he says in this new reality, this new political reality, Cal Calvinistic Baptist leaders in London called for a general assembly of Baptists to meet in the capital. It was this assembly that gave official sanction to the confessional document known as the Second London Confession of Faith or the 1689. Now, 1689 has a context. We say it, we use it. I make sure that say 1689. Um, that's not a plug. It's just a fact. 1689 came after 1686, 1687, 1688. And the timing of the 1689 is because their confession, this document wasn't able to be released or even published. It was developed in 1677, but there was persecution happening. And so it had to be, in some sense, kept under wraps. They weren't able to legally publish it until the Toleration Act, which happened in 1688. And the next year, they put out the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. So just some historical context there. Uh, but that confession had, had already been produced. And it's the second London Baptist because it was a first produced in 1644, 1646. Um, and so just some, some, some context there. Norm, I saw your hand. Yes. Is it safe to say that the dissenters, like, were they not Mark Mann? I'm sorry? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. For us, we're looking back at a historical period. But what was it to live? How did it feel to 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 be in the center of those things? Yeah. Right. We have this today. 
Yeah. Yep. We stand on the shoulders of men that, that came before us, but there was there was a lot of persecution. <clears throat> and it was actually through that persecution of Calvinistic Baptist Church that as persecution usually does within the church, broadly or more narrowly, it caused the spread of um, Calvinistic Baptist doctrine and teaching, and it calcified the church together in unity, um, which again, persecution usually does. <clears throat> um, so back to the, the man, Hercules Collins, it's interesting to read um, that Collins didn't have a uh, formal education or training, but he's described as being one who had, quote, the habitual use of spiritual conversation with friends as a way of growing as a Christian. So no formal education, very smart intellectually, theologically, but no formal education. And he actually pastored in an area that would have been more like blue collar uh, sailors and, um, and whatnot. But it's recorded that his sort of theological astuteness, clarity, conviction, um, his intellectual theological mind came through normative conversations about the Bible with other Christians, which is really interesting to think about because we sharpen, just thinking about the fact of how we sharpen one another through conversation together as Christians. We talk about the word, we talk about the Christian faith. Um, and here the Lord used conversations in this man's life to make him, I think, one of the uh, most influential Calvinistic Baptist preachers that we, we know. So just an interesting thought there. Um, after pastoring through persecution and being blessed by God with a growing ministry, Hercules died at, in 1702, around about. Uh, on his deathbed, he's recording as speaking with deep emotion on the implications of Revelation 12:11, which says this, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So even his last words recorded there at least give some, some context to what this man went through in his life. Um, but yeah, just interesting, interesting uh, words there. Now, with our time left, I want to transition from the man to the book, the catechism. And I think you can summarize uh, the Orthodox catechism in, in three or under three headings, instruction, protection, and unity, which is <clears throat> on the PowerPoint there, instruction, protection, and unity. Uh, Hercules Collins, he chose to modify the Heidelberg Confession. I mentioned before that the Orthodox Catechism is a modified, sort of baptized version of the Heidelberg Confession. Um, he wanted to make this confession accessible in his local congregation. Uh, one example of this type of editing from the um, Heidelberg to an Orthodox Catechism is the section dealing with the Ten Commandments. The Heidelberg Confession listed the Ten Commandments all together, then explained them individually. Hercules Collins thought it might be better to give each commandment separately, along with an explanation and application of each of those commandments. 
the goal was for the catechism to be more to be a more accessible teaching tool. Now, I think Pastor Collins here is marked by his pastoral heart and mind. His goal was to make the word of God clear and accessible to everyone, adults as well as children. Hercules Collins himself wrote, and for those whom the Lord hath committed to my charge, the eternal God may be your refuge and underneath you everlasting arms. That grace may be opened to your hearts and your hearts to grace. By the blessing of the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob may be upon you, and the eternal spirit may be with you. Shall be the prayer of your unworthy brother, but more unworthy pastor, Hercules Collins. <clears throat> you can just sort of hear his pastoral tone and, and heart there, but he wrote this for the instruction of his members. Um, second category there, protection. Now, when I say protection, so let's think about this. It's, it's a catechism. Um, it's the doctrines of scripture written in Q&A format for teaching. One for instruction and then second for protection. What do you think that means? Protection. <clears throat> protection from what? Heresy. Oh, I saw your hand and then Corinthians. I was like, your voice changed. Heresy. Yes. It was protection from heresy. The second use of the Orthodox Confession is seen in Collins' own words. He says, publish for the preventing or publish for preventing the canker and poison of heresy and error. So Collins' catechism is also written to protect his congregation, to teach them, but also to protect them. Um, Collins' desire there has some, some context. So it's written for protection against heresy, and he says the poison and canker of error, but even that, uh, that desire and even those words, I think, have, uh, have a context. Um, and part of that context is connected to a man named Thomas Collier. Anybody heard that name before? These are 17th century guys, maybe, I don't know. Um, anybody, Thomas Collier? Kyle, I knew you would have heard of it. Uh, who's, who's Thomas Collier? Any? Um, I just remember he was a Reformed Baptist pastor. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 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 It was. It was on the the Trinity. Yep. Good job, bro. So Thomas Collier, he was a man that surprised the Calvinistic Baptist community during this time. At one point, he was seen as faithful and actually one of the leading church planters of Calvinistic Baptist churches. Uh, later, he would be remembered as the, the opponent of the Baptist. Thomas Collier ended up denying the biblical and hist historic Orthodox teaching on the Trinity. Collier wrote at one point, these are his words, God is not first, as some imagine, three persons, yet one God, or three sub Subsistences, which we talked about that in the last Sunday school class, three subsistings distinguished, though not divided. So he uses the, the exact language distinguished, though undivided, and says, no, God is not that. 
It's altogether impossible to distinguish God in this manner and yet not divide him. Thus to distinguish is to divide. For three persons are three, not only distinguished, but divided. So say, or rather some say there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet not three, but one. Let anyone judge here if there be not three gods. If three, then not one. And so he uses the language of uh, the historic Orthodox um, confession about the Trinity and denies it clearly. At least you don't have to wonder what, what he believes. He made it clear that um, he doesn't uh, hold to our God as uh, one, yet triune, distinguished yet undivided. And so because of his unorthodox teaching on the Trinity, Collier was considered a heretic. Now, here's how his teaching, this man that was once seen as uh, a leading influence on Calvinistic Baptist churches and church planting, this is how his teaching affected the broader Protestant world and Reformed Baptists at the time. Some people knew and understood that his teaching didn't represent the broader Calvinistic Baptist community, but some did not. Many actually assumed because, and it makes sense, because of his earlier influence and his leading sort of the charge in the Calvinistic Baptist Church, they assumed, well, this represents what all Calvinistic Baptists believe. And so this was some of the background behind the catechism and Hercules Collins saying, well, this is also to defend against the canker and poison of heretical teaching and error. This, this really put a dent in the Calvinistic Baptist movement, so to speak, as they were not trying to create something different, but actually, as we'll talk about in a sec, trying to affirm, no, we are actually orthodox. We're not some other uh, thing over here on the side trying to reinvent the wheel. We are orthodox. And Hercules Collins states that himself in the catechism. But this, this really put a dent in their, their, their progress. <clears throat> Remember that Baptists were already seen as uh, unorthodox and dissenters because they did not agree with the teachings and practice of the state church. So needless to say, this did not help their cause. Um, they were already seen as strange because of their conviction about believers baptism and refused to baptize infants. And so this unfortunate shift in Collier's theology had deep impressions on the Calvinistic Baptist community. Now, this leads to the third point of Hercules Collins' catechism, and it's unity. Now, I say unity. What do you think I mean by unity? What do you think uh, Collins meant here by unity? So instruction, protection, and unity. What do you think he's he's getting at? Why would that be one of the aims? Why would the fact that it's a, a revision of the Westminster Catechism? Yep. 1689 was itself a revision of the Westminster Catholic Declaration to show that they're not uh, heretics. Right. The not heretics, but that they believe very similar in all, all the fundamental doctrines as many other Protestants, but with these peculiar ecclesiological and Baptistic beliefs. Yep. Well said. I could just record that and then play it again. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
unity here doesn't necessarily mean unity amongst Calvinistic Baptists, although I'm sure that's helping and part of the goal. Um, the aim here was to show that Calvinistic Baptists were united with the broader Reformed and Protestant and Orthodox community of believers. Um, a lot of times when we think about Baptists, we talk about them, and even I, myself, I can picture them, or can talk about them at times as if they were sort of these men who were, no, we, we, we don't agree with infant baptism. We don't agree with uh, that, that type of governance, a uh, uh, presbyter or Presbyterian government of church. We want to do our own thing. Um, they were from the origin seen as outcasts. They were uh, fighting in some sense, arguing, reasoning to show that we're not these left field Christians. We actually hold to Orthodox teaching. That was most of their fight as Reformed Baptists. It wasn't to be separatists. It was, I mean, they were already seen as separatists. It was to say that, it was to show that, no, we actually agree with you on these essentials and fundamentals of the faith. Stop persecuting us. Recognize us as part of the Orthodox church and its teachings and the, the history of, of the church. Hmm. And so, yeah, so like you get printed in the newspaper, and it was like Baptist Church of such and such is a heretic, right? Or yeah, they would publish a pamphlet, right? And you'd be you'd be on there, and they would they would see us hmm. as as you know these Anabaptists yep. that overthrow the government, and yep. like you know, just, and then there would be you know accusations and other things. But part of that was some of the doctrines and the things believed, and you're saying it differently, and yeah. you're really not like us, yeah. Yeah, basically, like to put us in a completely different category that's outside of Christianity. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a great point. Yep. Yeah, man. So it's uh, it, it, Norm said earlier, we stand on the shoulders of, of men and women that came before us, and we do. Uh, a hard fought um, uh, battle, really, in the 16th, 17th century. Um, as Reformed Baptists, Calvinistic Baptists were fighting for to be seen as Christian and, and Orthodox. <clears throat> and so we think about even, and uh, Matt mentioned this, uh, the Orthodox Catechism being a revision of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, he does this not to be distinct, but to show unity. And so he uh, uses as a, a basis, a document written, recognized by the broader uh, Orthodox Church. And he uses that even in saying, this is what I'm going to use. He's trying to show unity with the church um, and not this uh, distinction or separatist idea. Um, he takes that Heidelberg work and renames it an Orthodox Catechism. Even the title is meant to communicate something about their teaching, what, what, they, what, what he wanted to, to get out to uh, listening ears and watching eyes about the Calvinistic Baptist Church. This is an orthodox catechism. <clears throat> and so that's, that's important to keep in mind there. Again, just, just backdrop in context with this catechism that we're going to be working through for the, the next few months here. So against the backdrop of Thomas Collier's heretical teachings 
and broader accusations of unorthodox doctrine coming from the Calvinistic Baptist community, Hercules Collins wanted to identify himself and the particular Baptist community as part of the broader Reformed Protestant Orthodox community throughout Europe. That was the goal or one of the goals. <clears throat> Hercules Collins in his preface, he writes, I consenter, which means come together at, at a common center. I consenter with the most orthodox divines and the fundamental principles and articles of the Christian faith. In other words, um, this is in complete agreement with the broader Orthodox Church and those things which are essential to Christianity. In those things which are essential to Christianity. He says, there's complete agreement here. He goes on to write, albeit there are some differences between man, uh, many godly divines and us in church constitution. Yet, in as much as those things are not the essence of Christianity, but that we do agree in the fundamental doctrine thereof, there is sufficient ground to lay aside all bitterness, all prejudice, and labor to maintain the spirit of love each to other, knowing we shall never see all alike here. You hear what he's saying there? We agree on the things that are essential and if this is the case, then we can lay aside this uh, any bitterness or anything that would infringe upon or strip away from he, what he calls a spirit of love. Now, he's not talking to the Baptist community here. He's, he's talking to the broader community of the church. He's saying we agree on essentials. And so let us pursue and move forward in love knowing that we won't agree on every single thing. You can almost take this little paragraph here, these three sentences by Hercules Collins, and post them on all the reform boards on Facebook <laughs> and say, read this. <laughs> this is helpful. There's, there's, there's maturity here. There's, there's wisdom here. A lot of times we're, we're defined by and known by the things that we disagree with, the things that we differ about, and we will, which is fine, but how do we hold those convictions? What is that? <laughs> is that, is that Hercules? <laughs> Somebody in the church is trying to watch Hercules on Sunday morning. Okay, I'll just turn it off. Okay. <laughs> Images of Christ. <laughs> That's just me. <laughs> um, okay. So, I hope we this helps to give us some sense of um, Hercules Collins, the, the 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 context of the Catechism. Hercules Collins, the man himself. Um, so as we move forward to throughout this, this catechism. So again, it's 148 questions, which we'll, we'll look at. We won't take one question a week. Um, it'll be a really long time. So we'll take two, three, four at a time 
but we'll be in, in, in here for at least the next year. Hope that doesn't discourage you. <laughs> but it's all really good, helpful uh, teaching. And I hope that gives a context. I wanted to, I was going back and forth. Maybe we'll talk about this later. Um, I, I thought about reading his preface next week to, and just working through what he wanted to communicate to his church and to the broader reformed world. He has really helpful stuff. At one point, he talks about the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Ten Commandments and says something like, even though we may not agree with everything that the original drawers of these creeds said, let us be able to put aside um, things that we disagree with in order to maintain and hold the truth of what we read here. And so he uses the language of even those earlier creeds in his confession, as we see in the Heidelberg Catechism. So I think some of that stuff is really, really helpful. Um, so I don't know, we'll, we'll talk about it and maybe see if that might be, might be useful. But um, any, any thoughts as we close out here? Yes. Is it is the instruction piece the same? Is it the same content, just in a different format, a Q and A format? But it's the same, or, or is there differences in? Yeah. <laughs> so, Hercules Collins actually, um, in some of his edits, chose to use the language of the 1689 or that earlier confession, uh, in order to show the unity and consistency there. He was actually, I think, the fourth or fifth signer of the 1689. And so, and just, and, and it's, I think, thought recorded that the 1689 came primarily out of that Petty France church that he would have been a member of in his earlier years. So there is a consistency there. And it was intentional. It was to show unity between the, the uh, catechism and the Heidelberg, but also the catechism and the confession. And so the language is the same, uh, both drawing from earlier uh, creeds and confessions of the third, fourth century, the Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, and whatnot. And so he's really building on uh, those steps. But, and he even says himself in his preface, as the, the confession itself is a broader document and wanting to take the doctrine and teaching of the confession as is consistent with scripture and uh, write it in such a way and format it in such a way in some of his edits at least to where it's taking that 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 more broad document and 
stating it in such a way that's helpful for pithy sort of um, uh, reception of, of those truths. So weighty truths in the Q&A format with some edits by, by Collins in order to communicate those, again, to his uh, his congregation, his uh, the adults, the, the men, the women, and the children. And the confession was written for that purpose as well. It was drafted and um, you know edited for that purpose as well. But he carries on the same, these very pastoral tone and desire, which, which I think you see in his preface as well, because he talks about that, how his desire is for um, children and uh, parents to be able to read and understand these truths in order to, he uses some language like bolster or strengthen their faith. And so it's, it's very sort of woven into that. And building on that, so the Baptist had also uh, added the Baptist Catechism, yeah. which was uh, like a similar revision what you said with the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. <clears throat> so they kind of had like the Baptist version of that one as well. And one of the things that's nice with the Heidelberg and with the Orthodox Catechism, like you were saying, it, it's um, very pastoral and warm, and it's, it helps to integrate doctrine with, uh, with, with its application. It's written in such a way where it's like, I mean, the first question is just like, yeah. it leads over. How does a Christian have joy? What's his comfort in life and death? And yeah, you're just like, man, this is really... So, the, the, the Baptist Catechism that was kind of like the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, <coughs> that one was like very pithy to it. And then like with this one, it's, it's nice because it's got the same doctrine, but it's worded in such a way that's very pastoral and warm and engaging. Um, so, but, all, but also used for that kind of Q&A purpose. So yeah. It's interesting to see how they kind of use some of the different options within the Reformed Protestant tradition. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then um, um, James Renahan, he sent me like a, a comparison of the Heidelberg and the Orthodox Catechism where you can see specific areas where changes were made, which I think is really helpful too. So if you want that, I can also, I can also send that out. Um, but yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, very pastoral and, and warm and um, accessible. Yeah, so all right. Well, if we don't have any other thoughts or questions, let me go ahead and pray for us and you'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you for uh, your instruction to your church. We thank you again for your providence and sovereignty over human history and over the history of the church, um, where we can now hold and read, teach, be taught by, uh, discuss something like an orthodox catechism, um, which shows our uh, unity with uh, the broader uh, Baptist uh, world. Um, and also our unity with the even broader Reformed and Protestant world. It is a, it is a, a comfort and an, an encouragement to um, know that we um, stand in fellowship with, with Christians throughout this age, throughout the centuries that came before us. I pray that your instruction from your word through the means of this catechism would be helpful for us as we think about it, as we study it, as we read it, maybe even use it for guidance in our own teaching and prayers. I pray that it would be um, helpful and useful and that you would glorify yourself um, in all these things uh, for the good uh, of your church and even the education of your church on the mysteries of the gospel and of Christ, that we would grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.